0: I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how to navigate the 21st century economy without losing your humanity. Today, we're talking about meritocracy. Meritocracy is one of those internalized psychological systems that makes transforming our relationship with work really difficult. Now, when I say that work has changed, but the way we work has not... Our assumption of meritocracy is one of the chief reasons why, and you'll hear more about that in this episode. But before we get into that, if you're a coach, consultant, trainer, manager, or any other kind of guide who works with people rethinking their relationship to work, understanding these psychological systems is key to helping people make lasting change. We can treat the symptoms. But if we don't get to the root cause of overwork, negative self-worth, harmful self-talk, or poor boundaries, we won't be able to make the changes stick long-term. Starting on September 20th, I'm leading a 12-week program on understanding these systems, utilizing them in coaching or mentoring scenarios, and guiding the people you work with to be more aware of their beliefs about work and self-worth. Ultimately, it's a program about helping people change the way they work to be gentler, more satisfying, and more sustainable. It's called Work in Practice, you can find all about it, request the syllabus, and register at workinpractice.life. That's workinpractice.life. And if you're wondering if this program is for you or what we're going to be covering, think of this episode as a bit of a sneak peek into what we'll be covering in Work in Practice. Now, on with the show. Earlier this summer, the Supreme Court ruled that both Harvard and the University of North Carolina's race-conscious admissions programs violated the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. Even though race was just one factor taken into consideration with other factors toward the tail end of the admissions process, six of the nine justices declared the system didn't pass muster. This was despite the fact that both Harvard and UNC had developed their admissions processes based on guidance from other Supreme Court precedents. Now, many who argue for the end of affirmative action policies claim that admission should be based on merit, that admitting students through race conscious systems could mean that some meritorious students may be denied admission while less than meritorious students will be granted admission. Now, setting aside the overt racism of that argument for a moment, it just doesn't reflect the facts of the case. Specifically, at ultra-competitive Harvard, race is not considered until a student has already been vetted on merit. Because so many qualified students apply for a limited number of spots in the incoming freshman class, Harvard has to go through round after round of cuts. The final cut, the one that may use race as a factor in decision-making, comes only after every other qualification for acceptance has been met. But this concept of merit runs deep in American culture and politics. The founders envisioned a form of government that wasn't based on inheritance, but was instead based on merit. The president, Congress, and various state and local governing bodies were to be made up of people who deserved to govern, rather than those who had simply been born to rule. Merit, of course, had a gender and color then, as it largely still does. Owning property was part of merit. Merit, in other words, functioned to exclude the vast majority of American citizens. Now, over the last 250 years, the American project has been one that ostensibly expanded the definition of merit. Many more people have the right to own property, pursue a career, get an education, and participate in government today— than did in 1776 or 1788. Many Americans believe that truly anyone can succeed with the right mix of talent and hard work. In essence, they believe the United States is a meritocracy. There's nothing we can't do if we work hard, never sleep, and shirk all other responsibilities in our lives. You with me? Or as sociologist Tressie McMillan-Cottom put it, We do not share much in the U.S. culture of individualism except our delusions about meritocracy. Now, whether you've heard the term before or not, you're no doubt familiar with the concept. Anyone can succeed as long as they work hard and apply themselves. That's meritocracy. For a good chunk of human history, there was no presumption of meritocracy. Instead, we were ruled by the Aristocracy. Aristocrats were born into power, but they were also presumed to be more capable of guiding society than peasants or merchants. They were smarter, more courageous, more virtuous. They didn't just have more money or own more land. They were better than everyone else. Aristocracy didn't just represent a political or financial order— it was also a social and moral order. Of course, the idea that there would be that kind of hardline class stratification based on the luck of birth today, well, it feels foreign. We've been told a different story for a very long time, and that story is one of opportunity, class mobility, and earning your way to the top. It's a story that depends on a key character trait. Never, ever being satisfied with what you've achieved. In this story, there is no climax and no resolution. It's all conflict, competing against ourselves, each other, and societal expectations for a bigger piece of the pie. Even when we try to disengage, the story is there, lurking just over our shoulders. Just like aristocracy was simultaneously a political, financial, social, and moral order, so too is meritocracy. Meritocracy was actually conceived as a pejorative in 1956 by sociologist Alan Fox, and then popularized in 1958 by another sociologist, Michael Dunlap Young. And he used the term in his cutting essay about the British education system, The Rise of the Meritocracy. Of course, the concept of meritocracy is much, much older than the term. Ancient China, Greece, and Rome each had systems whereby citizens could earn different degrees of power and privilege. The British Empire instituted a civil service program in the 17th century based on China's system. Now, none of these were quote-unquote perfect meritocratic systems, though. Not everyone could sit for exams, for instance— Most often, women and foreigners were excluded, and the systems naturally increased the station of people who came from financial and educational privilege in the first place. Now, because meritocratic systems are so likely to maintain existing social stratification, the narrative of meritocracy isn't just that anyone can succeed. It's also justification for why people fail. If we truly live in a world where anyone who has some brains and a good work ethic can live a middle class life, then what does that tell us about the poor? What does it tell us about the women and minorities who are regularly overlooked for promotions? What does it tell us about who deserves government support and who doesn't? If success is equally available to anyone, then anyone who doesn't succeed must be inferior or defective. For all our talk of equal opportunity, it's that message of deficiency that we internalize from the narrative of meritocracy. While it's certainly not the only system that impacts how we see ourselves and move through the world, it's one that pops up in conversations about work all the time. Meritocracy as a system. Removes from possibility any other system that could have an impact on whether or not someone succeeds. It's not the housing system that's the problem. It's the people who don't work hard enough to afford rent. It's not the education system that's the problem. It's those kids who would rather play video games than study. It's not the healthcare system that's the problem. It's the people who insist on eating fast food and watching hours of TV. Meritocracy destabilizes our own lived experience by insisting that our identities don't change the opportunities we have access to, despite every indication to the contrary. And many of us know this. You know this. But these messages, well, they still eat away at our confidence and self-worth. These stories encourage us to work harder and harder to make up for systemic failures the system insists don't exist. You and I, the systems thinkers, the justice minded, the people who believe structural change is key to a better future, well, we still hold a nugget of the meritocratic story in a small corner of our minds. Freddie De Beer, writing for the New Inquiry, put it this way quote, We believe in meritocracy because we must. We have no vocabulary for what might possibly replace it. The normative eats the empirical. Faced with evidence that points to an unthinkable rejection of a cherished set of norms, the evidence is ignored, denigrated, or suppressed. Just as it seems impossible to imagine a world that doesn't run on capitalism, It seems impossible to imagine an educational, political, or corporate world that doesn't run on meritocracy, no matter how much evidence there is that our world is anything but meritocratic. Now, meritocracy was the defining belief of my childhood, without a doubt. I grew up working class, Both of my parents had taken a few college classes, but never finished a degree. My mom was a seamstress, my dad a cop. And within that context, I was raised to believe that the key to moving up in life was to check off the right boxes, get good grades, ace the SAT, go to college, get a degree, start a career, boom, middle class. Writer Jill Filipovich calls this the path. When I left college, I was astounded to learn that the path guaranteed nothing. This was not actually how the world works. You know, no one ever said to me, we live in a meritocracy, but boy, did I drink that sweet, sweet turn of the millennium flavor aid. The assumption of meritocracy was embedded into every corner of my life. Now, typically, critiques of meritocracy aren't really about critiquing meritocracy at all. These critiques assume that we need more meritocracy, a truer meritocracy than what we have right now. And it's these critiques that largely guide those who oppose college admissions processes, hiring practices, universal basic income, and other policies that seek to create a more equitable society. They argue and you might even believe that things would be better if the smartest, hardest-working, and most talented people really did rise to the top. But I want to present an alternative analysis that I find quite compelling, and it's that of Daniel Markovitz.
1: There's a dynamic in the kind of meritocracy that we have, which pushes towards the massive skewing and distention of skills and outcomes, and concentrating the rewards at the smallest, narrowest, pointiest tip of the hierarchy, and that that's not actually better for anyone.
0: Markovitz argues that meritocracy, even true meritocracy, breeds inequality that harms all of us, the elite, the languishing, and the disadvantaged.
1: It is sensible that people should be rewarded who do well at things that are socially productive. But we should favor ways of organizing our social and economic life that have things that are socially productive be more nearly equally rewarded. And we should f- pick ways of making things, ways of delivering services, ways of running schooling that don't skew achievement so far at the very top, because that's a destructive dynamic.
0: Markovitz argues that snowball inequality is the inevitable consequence of perfect meritocracy. In a perfect meritocratic system, the elite are self-reproducing. They train for super-skilled jobs, earn high incomes, put their kids into elite schools, where those kids train for super-skilled jobs, earn high incomes, and put their kids into elite schools. The cycle recurs every generation the inequality snowballs, and in the process, the middle class are increasingly squeezed out of educational and employment opportunities. The languishing end up in a perpetual servant class. T.R. Malthus, an English economist working at the turn of the 18th century, theorized that society would always organize its growth in such a way that it produced surplus population. There would always be people in poverty because there would always be too many people. Now, Marx later countered that surplus population was, instead, a tool of capitalist labor exploitation. Then, in the 20th century, Friedrich Hayek, an architect of the ideology we now call neoliberalism, well, he argued that free markets, total economic liberty, was the only way to treat people equally. The fact then, that some rise to wealth while others fall into poverty is only proof of how unequal we are. Trying to make people equal would put us all on what he called the road to serfdom. Now, while these ideas may seem distasteful to progressive ears, they're actually baked into media messages, textbooks, and popular culture in ways that ensure they're burned in our brains. Their ideas we take on whole cloth, assuming that they're just the way things are. They're part of the grand meta-narrative of meritocracy, and they undoubtedly shape how we work, how we feel about ourselves, and how we feel about the level of success we've attained. Markovitz also argues that while the elite becomes adept at deploying their time for work or work-like activities, think fitness, meditation, even approaching parenting as work, they have not learned how to deploy their time effectively for non-work activities. They simply don't have the skills to enjoy a lazy Sunday or pursue a hobby that isn't also a potential side hustle. Sound familiar? Does Markovitz have an alternative structure in mind for us? Sort of. And instead of being a cop-out, I think this sort of is highly instructional. Markovitz characterizes our current, not really meritocratic structure as one that's highly polarized, with a mass of extreme winners on one end and a much larger mass of extreme losers on the other. And of course, a very thin line of people in the middle. And the reason for this is that the rewards for the elite are so great, while the consequences for not being elite are so awful. Markovitz asks us to consider what it might be like to move through a world that doesn't have such a massive skill and reward gap between elite workers and other workers. He explains that doesn't mean that talented, hardworking people are denied recognition or reward Just that there would be systems that put limits on excessive rewards. The variability in compensation or material success would be constrained. Good enough really would be good enough to live comfortably.
1: The best society is one in which people get ahead by being good at things that are worth doing. And in that sense, that sounds a little bit like it's a kind of meritocracy. On the other hand, one of the essential features of meritocracy of the sort that we have today is intensive competition and the sense that getting ahead literally means getting ahead, that is to say, being better than others at something, rather than being good enough at something to be socially useful at it. And I think the kind of system that I want is one in which, for many parts of our social and economic life, advantages are given to people who are good enough at the thing that they're doing to be socially useful.
0: That sounds pretty good, right? Less inequality and more potential to live a good life without breaking yourself at work. But there can be a sort of loss aversion effect with the suggestion of this type of solution. Our meritocratic worldview often convinces us that we're on the verge of making it big. We're not merely good enough. We're the kind of elite that meritocracy was designed for. Redesigning the system to remove the most extreme rewards can feel like someone is taking something away from us, even if we never possessed it in the first place. And that makes us reluctant to change, both personally and politically. Philosopher Byung-Chul Han describes the way we learn to think with the status quo as neoliberal psychopolitics. While an earlier version of capitalism exerted control over our bodies, that's biopolitics, Today's capitalism is internalized and psychologized. Neoliberal psychopolitics has naturalized values like productivity, efficiency, willpower, self-control, achievement. And to not align ourselves with these values is almost unthinkable in the 21st century. But the history of these values is short productivity and efficiency were only applied to human labor in the late 19th to early 20th centuries. Before that, they were just terms that applied to land use and then machines. Willpower and self-control have somewhat longer histories, becoming prized trades during the boom in aesthetic Protestantism in the 17th century. And oddly enough, they were understood less as personal capabilities to be cultivated and more as gifts from God. Cultivating willpower and self-control became popular in the mid-20th century. These values don't represent human progress so much as they do the will of those who benefit from the status quo. If traits like self-control and productivity are highly valued, then people who want to better themselves will learn how to become more productive and self-controlled. They won't need to be compelled by an outside force They'll do it all of their own volition. The political power of the status quo is no longer external. Rather, it's now the voice inside our heads. The notion of meritocracy lives on in the way we talk to ourselves. It's not until we can replace the voice inside our heads with something gentler and kinder that we can fully disengage from this system that doesn't exist. Changing your relationship to work is hard. There is a ton of social conditioning, economic friction, and even relationship challenges to wade through. Even if you really want to change, you can easily get caught up in old patterns. And no one knows this better than the coaches, consultants, managers, and guides of all kinds who work with people who, well, work. If you're one of those guides, you already have a bunch of tools for helping people know what their values are and what really matters to them. You have tools for helping people identify their next steps. But where you might feel a bit uneasy is helping your clients or team members identify the external influences that keep them stuck or stressed. That's why I'm leading a 12-week certificate program called Work in Practice. You'll learn how to spot the social, political, and economic systems that make change hard. Because until we can unravel those systems and question our most basic assumptions about work, we won't be able to break the cycle and imagine a more sustainable and nourishing way forward. Work in Practice starts September 20th, Learn more about the program and view the program syllabus at workinpractice.life. That's workinpractice.life. What Works is a production of Yellow House Media. A podcast production agency for people changing the way we think about culture, creativity, leadership, and work. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. This episode was written and edited by me, Tara McMullen. Marty Seafelt is our audio engineer. And Sean McMullen is our fearless leader and executive producer. What Works is produced on stolen land. We're grateful to the Susquehannock and Conestogo peoples, who stewarded this land for thousands of years before the arrival of white colonists. The Yellow House is on the unceded land of the Kutunaha Nation and the tribes of the Salish and Kalispell.